Hello and welcome back to the latest edition of the Northeast Newscast. As always, I'm your host, Paul Thompson, and this week I'll be joined by Abby Judah of Legal Aid of Western Missouri. We'll be talking primarily about urban homesteading, a process by which individuals can occupy and rehab vacant homes. Urban homesteading is a tool used by neighborhood associations that can help eradicate blight in their community. The process is for homes that have had repeated code violations, and they must be vacant for at least six months. If a property fits that description, then lawyers like Abby Judah can go in using the Abandoned Housing Act to legally transfer ownership of said property into the hands of neighborhood associations, who could then turn over the property to individuals willing to rehab and remove the blight. In this week's episode, Abby Judah will discuss the process by which neighborhood associations and individuals can get their hands on these type of properties, and how the process plays out from there. Judah's job allows her to improve communities in Kansas City, and after speaking with her about it, it's obvious how much she relishes the role. What follows is my conversation with Abby Judah of Legal Aid of Western Missouri. Thank you for listening. All right, uh, Paul Thompson here at the offices of uh, Legal Aid of Western Missouri, sitting across from Abby Judah. And, and what's your official title here? Then? Staff attorney. Okay, staff attorney with Legal Aid of Western Missouri. She does a lot of work with urban homesteading, particularly in the Indian Mountain neighborhood. Is that right? Yes. So we, um, we, I'm in the Community Economic Development Unit, and mm-hmm. we work in um, several neighborhoods all across Kansas City, primarily on the east side of town, um, but as far north as the Northland, um, as far south as the Ruskin area. Um, so I work with a few other attorneys. Can you just give us a little background to get started about how you got to Legal Aid of Western Missouri and what it is about this particular uh, field that interests you? Me personally? Yeah. Um, So this was my first internship in law school. Um, I had no idea what I wanted to do other than helping people, Hmm. Um, but I found the real estate aspect really interesting and using that to help people and kind of create um, a a better life for people in communities. I thought that was really interesting. So it's it's really fun. Uh, we're on the ground working. We're in neighborhood meetings all the time, constantly communicating with neighborhood stakeholders, um, you know, city, county government, everyone. And then we're also working on um, houses. You mm-hmm. know, we're work, we're getting to see work being done. So our the main goal of this unit is to target problem properties mm-hmm. and put them back into productive use. So we represent neighborhood associations um, in acquiring, and sometimes we just want to get the repairs done. Um, so we try to um, make sure that dangerous buildings are repaired and um, you know, help promote the neighborhood pride, people feel safe. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> you know, they, you know, People don't want to live next door to something where there are a bunch of rodents and trash, and it's it's demoralizing. So right. I thought that aspect was really interesting. And um, throughout law school, I tried to do everything I could to learn more about this area. I, you know, did stuff with quiet titles. Um, you know, I learned about. I worked with the land bank for a little bit and learned about what they do, mm-hmm. um, and just tried to learn everything about this. And then. Um, as soon as I graduated from law school, this job position came up, so I was happy to. It piqued your interest pretty quickly. Yes, very. It was immediate. <laughs> cool. Now, 
urban homesteading is kind of a catch-all, essentially, description of, of what you sort of just spoke about, right? Somewhat. So um, we urban homesteading is a program. Um, we work with... We, so the neighborhoods are always our clients for mm-hmm. these cases. Um, and in urban homesteading, there's a program to get more people into the houses. So mm-hmm. for a long time, we've been working with various rehabbers, um, community development corporations, um, and just people who are in the business mm-hmm. of fixing up houses. Um, urban homesteading is a program that was developed by my colleagues years ago, and it's to get owner occupants in. So before people, some of our houses were going toward owner occupancy, and that's often the goal of most of our neighborhoods. We, you know, we need affordable and clean and safe rental units, but neighborhood associations also want to, you know, make sure that they're getting owner occupants and people who are going to be there and um, contribute to the longevity of the neighborhood. Right. Um, so this is a program where we try to get people there. So um, in Indian Mound, they will pick out a house maybe. Um, well, I, a lot of them are donations through municipal housing court. People have too many co- code violations or something, and it's mm-hmm. too much for them, and they don't really want the house. They don't it's pay not taxes. Something, they can't pay the taxes, right. yeah. So they can donate them, and we can accept them as is. And someone will go in, fix it up, and then live there for at least two years. Mm-hmm. So that's... Um, when we work with rehabbers, we have very strict guidelines. We have to know exactly what their work has, what their work product has been like in the past. Um, you know, we have to make sure that they're in good standing with the city and with like the secretary of state and everything. We mm-hmm. we're pretty strict on who we work with. Um, what would be and considered? We're still, oh, sorry. Oh, I was well on that point. I, I just wanted to ask, what would be considered maybe a red flag if you're looking at a rehabber who might be mo- taking on a property like that what are you afraid of that maybe that they would be involved in we don't want someone who's going to not follow through mm-hmm. we don't want someone who's going to um, you know not do the work properly and then it's back back to being a vacant blighted property a year mm-hmm. later that's what we want to avoid um, we want we don't want to you want this find to be out, a solution yeah we want this to be a solution we don't want to work with someone who is going to um, be a bad landlord. We don't want to work with people who are going to contribute to the problem and we're going to have to come back. So we, we want to be able to fix, have someone fix up a house and then it stays that way and it's, it's a safe place for people to live or mm-hmm. work or what, whatever. And in terms of the relationship with homes associations, can, can we maybe get into a little bit of the process? Do they reach out to you and say, hey, we have a blighted property in our neighborhood and we need something done about it because people are in there causing problems or it's just a sort of magnet for codes violations in our neighborhood and it's hurting the quality of life of our residents. How does the initial conversation start between your organization and neighborhoods in the Northeast and throughout the city? So with most of them, we've, we've developed a working relationship with some, some neighborhoods. We're still kind of working, reaching out to them. Maybe we've had a relationship with them in the past and we're trying to rebuild that um, but it can start a few different ways. Sometimes the city will call us and say, there's been this problem, please do something about it. Um, sometimes we'll find out from individual residents at community events and they'll hear about the work that we do and they say, please do something about it. Mm-hmm. Um, a lot of the neighborhoods will are pretty vigilant and will go around and find properties and say, this has been a problem. They, um, you know, they listen to their residents and they report to us. Um, 
And the amount, for example, is divided into the four quadrants. Mm -hmm. And every once in a while, they like they'll meet with their block captains, and um, they'll can they'll send us that information once they've walked around up their block captains, and who have met with their residents. And so we just try to get information however we can. Okay, and I I know in a lot of instances, perhaps these neighbors or neighborhoods have reached out to the police department or something right. to help abate these issues. Or if they feel that uh, someone is squatting in these properties and not doing the things that they should be doing, or, or actually, in some instances, probably making these code situations worse, right? Of yes. a, or perpetuating the problem, so to speak. But really, essentially, I guess, as I understand it, what happens is they'll reach out to you in one way, shape, or form, and you will essentially, or the organization will file lawsuits on their behalf to get the property under the neighborhood's purview. Yes. And then from there, they will essentially try to find a good tenant for that property, right? So... How badly did I butcher that? It was, it was almost there. <laughs> okay. So normally we try to identify someone who can, who can and is willing to fix up the property before we go through all that. Uh, we want to limit how much the neighborhood is... Putting down. So I mean, these neighbor- neighborhoods are made up of volunteers, right. and they they have a lot of expenses. So we try to put that on the person who's going to be receiving the property in the mm-hmm. end. Um, they're going to be the ones that are going to pay for the lawsuit. We don't charge for our legal services. Mm-hmm. Uh, we um, represent the neighborhoods. They, but the people who are going to end up fixing up the property and living there, if it's an urban homesteader, will be responsible for um, paying the filing fees or. They'll have to serve all the parties, uh, get getting a title report, uh, recording notice with a recorder of deeds, and that can cost anywhere from six hundred to eight or nine hundred, mm-hmm. depending on how many people are on the title. So um, it's it's important that we can find someone who who can do the work and wants to do the work, and it's it's more likely that they'll finish if they're motivated from the very beginning and have. They're staying. putting something, yeah. They're putting something Skin in. Skin in the game, so to speak, right? Right. So um, with with this lawsuit, the Abandoned Housing Act is kind of our main tool that we use. And that's when we... These are the properties that are abandoned. They're the properties where we can't get in contact with them to sell. They You're can't, not pulling them not, away from a homeowner. Right, right, homeowner. yeah. They're always vacant. They have to be vacant for at least six months. They have to be nuisances, and they have, they have to be delinquent on their taxes. So it um, has to be a codes violation on the books. Right, okay. right. Or a dangerous building, or, mm-hmm. or something. It has to be um, a nuisance property. It has to. It, if it's just like your weeds are a little tall and you've been gone on vacation, that's not. Right. That's, like my neighbors right. annoying me because they keep mowing their leaves into my yard. All right. That is not going to. That's not going to cut. These mm-hmm. are. These are serious, serious problem properties. Um, you know, if if they're, if it's something where the person is wanting to be involved. And you know maybe just doesn't have the money to pay the taxes at the time or or something like we're we're understanding of that. Um, so this is kind of a, a lawsuit. It's a tool of last resort. Mm-hmm. Uh, we we would do this to prevent a property from going to the tax sale, basically, because we want to get them back in productive use before you know they sit and this would know, be, let everything in for five years or something. This would be before it goes to a land bank or something yeah, like that. So, these so are all it's an alternative. Private, yeah, so they're all they're all privately owned properties. Um, and yeah, it's 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 an alternative and we try to get it before they 
they go through tax sale and then bank and all that. So, um, so who are typically the deed holders at that point? I mean, anyone. So we have a lot of out of state LLCs, um, around the financial crisis, a lot of people and entities just bought up a ton of property in Kansas city. It's, for pennies on the it was, dollar. Yeah. It was cheap real estate. They got it out of foreclosures or maybe they got them out of tax sales or something. Um, banks holding it because people just walked away. Right. That happens sometimes. Mm-hmm. Um, happens a lot oh, quite a bit or mm-hmm. or foreclosures um you know the REO properties but right. um most of the time it's yeah LLCs maybe the person who was the active member of that LLC is no longer living so there's no one to do anything with the property or maybe a lot of times it's people who have passed away and their heirs don't really want anything to do with it or don't even really know that they have an interest in the property mm-hmm. um and then by the time we call and tell them like, Hey, you have an interest in this property. Um, can you do something about it? You know, it's, they turn that back on you and say, can you do something about it? (laughs) Yeah. Sometimes because it's, you know, these are, these are problem properties when it gets to the point that we're involved. Um, you have to, you it's going to take a significant investment to get them back into productive use. And oftentimes I would imagine if it's the situation, like you just mentioned where an individual has passed away, they probably weren't in in the help shape yeah, that they needed to be in to take care of it or to keep the upkeep or they're saying well I don't you know I know I have you know in, in bad situations I'm sure they're saying I don't know how much time I have left I'm not gonna repair these codes violations right now it's the least of my concerns right, right? and that's that's information I don't have but I'm sure that right. goes through people's minds too mm-hmm. um, you know a lot of them they have various liens on the property they have old mortgages, uh, mortgage companies go out of business too, and then they're, they're stuck with this cloud on the title. So mm-hmm. we have to go through a lawsuit to get that cleared off a lot of the time. So this is a way we can we can acquire the property and we can also clear some of the title issues. Um, important thing to note, though, with this lawsuit, mm-hmm. um, just filing it doesn't mean you get it. Um, right. You have to, the person actually has to make the repairs in order to get title. So it can be, that can be a barrier to a lot of people because you're going to have to put up a lot of investment um, out of your own savings, out of your own line of credit, because you're not going to be able to get a loan on something that you don't own. It's going to be in Mm -hmm. the lawsuit, um, in the former owner, the the owner's name, the record owner's name. Um, So you'll be fixing it up under a court order that says you have, that the neighborhood has possession of the property. So, um, there, that's something that's tricky, but it also prevents people from just coming in, taking property, and then sitting on it again. And the scope of work, do they have to do more than just abate the codes violations, or is it up to the homes association? The it's scope. Up, it's up to the it's up to the neighborhood association. But what we normally say is they need to abate all the code violations, and then a little significant more than that. They they don't have to have all of the furnishings done. It doesn't have to be perfect mm-hmm. by the time we go back to the court, but it needs to have a significant amount of the work done. And it's really up to the neighborhood association. Um, some what? neighborhoods where, you know, people like, and it also depends on the person who's rehabbing. If it's someone who has significant amount of capital, but doesn't have, maybe doesn't have a really a proven track record with that neighborhood, they mm-hmm. may want to see the whole project done. Right. Um, with some of, some of the urban homesteaders we work with in, 
um, like any amount. They're people, they're not people who, they might be professionals, but most, almost everyone, they have, this isn't their day job. This is something they're doing on, on nights and weekends and everything. Mm-hmm. Um, and they might need a loan on it. So, you know, by the time they get, maybe they get all the electrical work and some of the plumbing, but they're going to have to get, you know, a rehab loan to do some of the final touches. And, and in lieu of a loan, they need to pay as you go type of situation, I'm sure too, right? Um, yeah, so on this, yeah, with when you're fixing it up through the court process, you just, you have to pay as you go. You can't get a loan on what you're doing right. unless you're securing other collateral. Well, and what's the typical timeline for this? I mean, when you go to a court, they, does the Home Association say, um, hey, we need this done in six months, or does the court say, come back to us in six months? And I'm just throwing the those numbers out there. So we always do a contract with the people we work with, the neighborhood does. Um, you know, from the time of filing before you actually get inside to see what the property looks like, it might be like three months or so. Mm-hmm. Um, and then they would put together a rehab plan. And on that plan, they would say, hey, I think this is going to take six months to, do, months to do it, or it might take nine. Um, it depends on the neighborhood. Some of them say six months hard deadline some mm-hmm. say nine some say a year and it really just depends on the neighborhood on the property on the person doing the work um, so there are a lot of variables there right. we try to get everything done within a year right. so it's not just an interminable project that right. goes on right. forever and the neighbors are wondering what's happening <laughs> right, right right okay how many how many projects have you been involved with in the historic northeast roughly I know I didn't prep you for this question, oh. so. I want to say maybe 10 or so in the Northeast. And that's over the, what, About kind of time? About a year and a half. Okay. And you have coworkers that are doing the same yes, thing in other neighborhoods in the Northeast? Yes, working in the Northeast and all over Kansas City. So, so maybe we're dozens. Spread, we're spread around. Yeah. 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 Um, so, I mean, we do at least 60 a year in Kansas City, and I, I think that's our minimum, and I think we go... We exceed that normally. Okay. Sorry, I don't have those numbers. No, I didn't even ask for you. I just I just tossed that because it was something that occurred to me as we were talking here. <laughs> no, that's fine. I think that's interesting. And and so, w- when you are going through this process, I guess do you have do you have some some horror stories of, of times where something didn't pan out? I mean, what happens right. if, if it doesn't work out? We've gone. I've we've. You know, um, it's it has not worked out a few times. So we went into one house this past summer, mm-hmm. and um, the rehabber at the time, there was a hole in the roof. And the rehabber thought, you know, I think I can I can deal with this. I think it'll be fine. And we got inside, and it, it was awful. It was not a safe structure whatsoever. We probably should not have been inside. Mm-hmm. When we go inside, we have a court order saying you're allowed entry for the purposes of assessing the nuisance conditions and mm-hmm. putting together a rehab plan. So it's under under the court's right. <laughs> purview, we're not just going into properties. And right. We cannot uh, suggest that people do that ever. That is trespassing, and it's very dangerous, too. Um, so if that was a property we had, we, we couldn't really do anything with. Um, it's, it's, you know, it's sad that we're losing a really nice structure, a really cool structure from the outside, um, you know, historic short waist that... Mm. You know, great to have around, um, but it's something that's we we ended up having to dismiss that case, and we're all upset about it. But we're we're still monitoring it, making sure 
that someday it gets torn down and is that what happens if it. one that if some if the neighborhood association comes to you with a property and it's too far gone mm-hmm. does it get referred back to the city and i know that they they have for instance like well, a well, demolition program yeah so the neighborhood will contact the city and let them know that it is let them know what the conditions are um and that and anyone can do that with a any nuisance property or any dangerous property, calling 311 is a really great tool that we have. Um, the city is very helpful on, on a lot of the stuff. So if, if you're a concerned neighbor, call 311 um, and let them know what's going on. Um, the Northeast, it's, it's great because they have the partnership with uh, Jerusalem Farms. Mm-hmm. So they have, uh, for the occupied properties that might be problem properties, um, where the people you maybe don't have the skills, you don't have the money or the time to do the repairs. They have the Neighborhood Accountability Board and can kind of get around that so you don't have to go to housing court. And right. it's a really, really great program. Hmm. Um, actually, but for the vacant properties, 311 is. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> and actually, Jordan was uh, was a guest on our pod already. Okay, so good, it was, good. They're doing awesome work. And uh, I would encourage anybody good. who's hearing this one, go back and listen to that too if you have questions about codes violations or things that maybe they can help you with in terms of repairs because they do really great work as well. But, uh, well, I was going to, I was wondering, uh, let's say that somebody's listening to this right now and, and thinks, Hey, I've got some carpentry skills. I've, I've you know, got some money socked away. I'd be interested in getting into a property or perhaps flipping a property or something of that nature. What would you suggest somebody who, who thinks maybe they would be a fit for urban homesteading, but doesn't really know what to do? Please call us. Um, so Flipping properties is kind of turn. It's now kind of a dirty word. Okay, <laughs> so, we'll see. I don't even know. Right. Yeah. Um, so with, with urban excuse my language. <laughs> with urban homesteading, it is a requirement that you're going to live in the property for two years. Right. Um, and a lot of um, Indian Mountain for one is one that really prefers that, and a lot of other neighborhoods do too. Mm-hmm. Um, but a lot. I mean, a lot of people work with us, and this is a way they can acquire properties. For rental or um, you know if they sell them it's just kind of up to the neighborhood mm-hmm. um, but they should contact us at Legal Aid Western Missouri um, our phone number is 816-474-9868 um, we have some questionnaires we have the two tracks of questionnaires or our just general rehabber questionnaire if you're mm-hmm. going to be doing this um, for commercial purposes and you're not going to be living there, but if you're planning on living there, then we have our urban homesteader. Okay. Cool. Yeah. So we have a list, um, and whenever a house comes up, we will call people and let them know what what house is available. But then also people who are interested in a specific house can call us, and we'll do the research to see if it qualifies, see if we can reach out to the owner, and maybe um, that person wants to sell it or that person wants to donate it. So. So it doesn't necessarily always have to result in a lawsuit right. for you to get the property. Don't, I would from, prefer it doesn't right. yeah, <laughs> go to a lawsuit. Sure. Um, you know, people, I mean, while these are generally friendly lawsuits, mm-hmm. um, no one no one wants to get served. <laughs> right, right. But, um, so you're not, uh, best case scenario, you never go to court at all. Right. Right. You, right. you, you deal directly with whoever is holding uh, the deed on the property or whatnot. Yes. And... They say, yeah, if you guys could take this off our hands and get it to the Neighborhood Association, that would be great. Right. right. We want these to be kind of a, a win-win for everyone involved. Um, I mean, these properties are often significant liabilities for the owners. Mm-hmm. I mean, they're they're dangerous. You know, they might owe 
I don't know, two, three years worth of back taxes. There might be municipal liens on the property. So we want we want to, you know, take those off people's hands who who don't really want them. And there's some there are properties you can't you often can't sell. Right. Um, there might be title issues and we can work with owners. Maybe we'd have to file a different lawsuit or we could just work with um, you know, all of the people who might have an interest in the property and right. kind of clear those title issues so they are marketable in the future and, and you know once someone puts in some work um, they could actually sell it so, so that's our goal right <laughs> so people, well so yeah. the scope I guess I, I did want to ask you as well about just like the scope of ongoing costs uh, and I'll let you go shortly thereafter because I know that um, I told you I wasn't going to take much of your time I don't intend to lie when I say that but sometimes you just get going and the conversation's going well um, but so there are costs, you said 600 up to some several, a couple thousand dollars perhaps based on just getting the property and abating the, the codes. Uh, is there like an ongoing rent or something to... No, the, no. So um, You're once, just paying taxes. And, yeah, once you... I mean, the, the point is to put the money into the property. Um, the neighborhood's not selling this. Right. We're, um, you know, the neighborhood wants the property to be fixed up. Neighborhoods want to have people living in the houses. Um, they, this is this is what they want out of the lawsuit. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, we are not we're not suing for damages from the, the owners or anything. It's it's all you're not trying to get a quick buck for the neighborhood right, association, right? Right. So um, the goal of it, yeah, we you know, it's it costs a, a certain amount of money just to file the lawsuit based on how many people are in the title, um, and then. Or the documents might be another $75 or something after that. But the money just goes into the property. It d- depends on how bad the property is. Some rehabs might cost five, $6,000, best case scenario. And some of them cost 80000 And it's just, it depends on what you're wanting, what your final result is, how bad the property is when you get it. Um, and then property taxes can vary quite a bit um you know some of the principles are low as low as like 25 dollars, and some of them are a thousand dollars and then depending on how long it's been tax delinquent there mm-hmm. can be quite a bit in the fees and interest and everything so that's something to keep in mind before you <laughs> jump into something with both feet necessarily but um... and that information is available online so if you you're interested in a property um drive by uh you know how does it look from the outside? Look it up on like the Jackson County Assessor's website. See mm-hmm. how much, um, how many years are behind on taxes. So. Right. Do the due diligence before right. you right. Uh, before you jump into something like this. But, right, and that's information we provide too. But, right. Yeah. But ultimately, if you do decide to jump into something like this, this partnership between the neighborhood, legal aid, if, if it comes to that, hopefully, ideally, right. In a, in a perfect world, this becomes sort of a, a mutually beneficial arrangement where the neighborhood is improved, a family gets into a property at a, at a price that maybe they wouldn't be able to afford right. elsewhere. And that's the best thing, one of the best things about the Urban Homesteading Program. Um, it really breaks down barriers for acquiring a house. Um, if you're buying a house off Craigslist even, one of these you know rehabber specials, um, it's buy as is I mean it still might cost ten thousand dollars or something and if most people a lot of people don't have that in the bank so mm-hmm. uh, eliminating some of those barriers is a, it can be a really good opportunity for families well and I'll leave it at this because I wanted to ask you 
uh, on, on more of a personal level, you said you've been involved in more than 10 or around 10 in the Northeast. What's the feeling like when you do get uh, a happy family in and the thing works out and the neighborhood's happy? I mean, what's your reaction when you get a chance to see it come to fruition in a way that sort of resolves the abatement issues or abates the, the codes violations and gets somebody into a home where all sides are satisfied? I can't even <laughs> describe it. I mean, it's, um, I, I'm not sure what it would be like to win like a big trial, but, you know, seeing a family get moved into a house and talking with the neighbors who are relieved that, you know, you know, this house that maybe was formerly a drug house and then it became just a den for people to come in and squat and then rodents. It's just, I, I can't even describe it, but it's, it's really, it's really meaningful work, but um, it's not work that, of course, we do alone. You know, it takes work from the neighborhood. It takes work from the people who are doing doing the rehab and putting everything in there. So it's just, it's it's great that we can do something that provides access for people to to build their own happiness, you know. Hmm. That makes sense. <laughs> no, absolutely. No, that's that's good. And I can, I can, um, can sense that sort of genuine quality in you when it comes to that stuff. So I do appreciate that. And I'm sure those that you've helped in our area definitely appreciate it as well. And at that, I think I'll, I'll go ahead and cut it off. I appreciate your time so much. And I look forward to getting this out and letting people know about everything that you do here and how you can make things better for people in the Northeast. So I appreciate it. Thank you. That concludes my conversation with Abby Judah of Legal Aid of Western Missouri. Thank you so much once again for listening to this edition of the Northeast Newscast. And thank you to Abby Judah for serving as this week's guest. Tune in next time on Kansas City's Northeast Newscast. I'm your host, Paul Thompson, signing out.